0: Welcome everyone to Potado. We're back with our, I think, ninth episode. Jess? Yep, that would be Uh, nice. It's been a long time since we've been in the recording studio. Actually, we've been uh, really busy editing and releasing episodes. Hopefully, everyone caught our last few episodes. And we've actually been um, reaching out to potential partner organizations for Potado, which has been a really exciting step for us. We reached out to Career Transitions for Dancers, which is a great organization that. Um, I think you can tell by the name focuses on helping dancers transition from their relatively short careers and very intense careers as dancers to uh, you know new realms of the world. And um, we we've talked about this organization in the past, and we'll kind of see how that partnership takes takes place. So we're excited about that. And then we also reached out to FourDancers.org and Dance Advantage, which are two sister. Blogs for dancers. They're incredible resources. They're really popular. You, should guys, you guys should all check them out. Um, that's fordancers.org and danceadvantage.net. So take a look. Um, and some kind of exciting news from those partners. Actually, both uh, the authors of those blogs just published two ebooks that I think are of interest to our listeners. One is Get Your Dance Blog Moving, which is about how to start a dance blog. So I'm hoping that our conversations in the studio will really inspire a lot of our listeners to. Want to talk about dance themselves, so they should take a look at this ebook and start their own blog. Obviously, let us know if you do. We'll promote it on our page. And um, the second ebook is What Freshman Dance Majors Need to Know, um, which we found really fascinating because we've actually talked on this podcast before about the lack of information that's often out there for dancers as they transition. I think we've talked about from college to the real world of being a professional and how sometimes there's just not. There's a lack of resources and lack of realistic information presented to dancers about what it's going to be like. Um, So we thought it was really cool that these authors took a step back and looked at that transition from high school to college, which is another huge kind of leap for a dancer to make. And there are so many specific aspects of life as a dancer that um, a lot of people just wouldn't know. So pretty cool that those resources are out there. Check them out. And so anyway, that's what we've been doing in the space since recording. Uh, It's been exciting. Other than that, I haven't really had time for anything. I've been out of town most of the month traveling, um, which has been fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What about you, Jess? Um, I've just been really enjoying the summer for
1: the first few weeks of summer. This past weekend for the holiday weekend, I went to the Hamptons for the first time.
0: Ooh, fancy.
1: It was a very civilized and sexy beach experience. But it was very fun. We also did a wine tour along the North Fork of Long Island, which was really nice.
0: That sounds very fancy.
1: Yeah. Fourth of July. It was fancy. (laughs) Just been really enjoying the summer and trying to see dance when I can. What have you seen? Um, I've seen a few things at the Joyce, and I saw ABT perform some ballets. But most notably, I think the best thing I saw recently was cedar lakes farewell performance at bam
0: you caught it yeah it
1: It was so amazing there was just such electric energy in the air and i have never seen the dancers perform so well not to say that they weren't performing well in the first place Mm -hmm. but they really had this energy you really felt like they were dancing like this was the last time they were going to dance on stage and they were so amazing wow they received standing ovations that night and I heard on the final performance, which I think was the Saturday night, they received, like, 20 minutes of a standing ovation. Oh Maybe gosh. I'm making that up, but I heard
0: that. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I can't imagine sticking around for 20 minutes of standing ovation. <laughs> but that's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are mo- do you think most of the dancers are done dancing, or are a lot of them just seeking other companies? Um, To my knowledge, they're that?
1: seeking other opportunities, but yeah, it really was sad to see them go. You really felt that from... The energy in the room.
0: Yeah, and that's so special to be there. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Um, I think we've talked about seeing the National Ballet of China coming up. I haven't gotten tickets yet, but I'm super curious about that. I've never seen the National Ballet of China. Yeah, neither have I, so that should be fun. Yeah, we should go. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've also been trying to plan our Jacob's Pillow trip 2015. It seems like it's not (laughs) as likely to happen as it has in years past. All of our friends are traveling in different places, so. Hopefully we can make it work. I think you and Anisabel at least can go. Yeah, we're going to try to go, but hopefully you can make it too. I hope so. Stupid Mm -hmm. work. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're incredibly excited today because we're talking to Brock LeBrens. And Brock is a really... um, Brock is a dancer, a performer, and a filmmaker. Um, and he's also worked with William Forsyth, um, which is really incredible. Uh, Forsyth is one of the most fascinating and well-known contemporary choreographers, um, and I would say dance intellectuals of our time. So pretty exciting. Um, we've actually been looking forward to interviewing Brock for months. It's taken us that long to schedule. So uh, to give you a little bit of background, uh, Brock studied acting and dance at Columbia, at uh, the Ailey School, and at Juilliard, from which he received his Bachelor of Fine Arts. And upon graduation, he joined Ballet Frankfurt as a soloist, where, uh, which is where he worked with uh, the world-renowned choreographer William Forsyth. So uh, we'll bring him on in a minute, but I think we're gonna give you a little background on Forsyth first. Okay,
1: thank you, Clara. William Forsyth began working as a choreographer in 1976. In 1984, he became the artistic director of the Ballet Frankfurt, which he led for 20 years. In 2005, he left Ballet Frankfurt and founded the much smaller, the Forsyth Company. His body of work has been a continual exploration of choreography itself, to put it in just a few words. He has come so far as to ask, is it possible for choreography to generate autonomous expressions of its principles a choreographic object without the body. He thus has fundamentally questioned the supposed precepts of his own medium or ballet's connection to the body. Forsyth investigated and created a number of works under the Choreographic Object Series, and one such work, Nowhere and Everywhere at the same time, was first performed in 2005 in NYC and continues to be presented across the world. Our guest today, Brock LeBrens, was a key collaborator for this particular piece, so we thought it was appropriate to provide that little bit of context before we start our conversation. So we'd like to welcome Brock to our interview
0: today. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: Awesome. Well, why don't we start out with just a little background. Tell us about um, briefly your background in dance training and how you kind of ended up at Ballet Frankfurt after finishing with Juilliard.
2: Uh, well, the, the short version of that would be that uh, I was an actor all, pretty much all my life. I started performing in theater when I was about five years old, and so that was oh. a, a constant in my life. And I was always a very physical child, so I played sports and baseball and basketball until everyone went through puberty except me, and <laughs> everyone got tall, and so I uh, eventually stopped having to play basketball. Uh, then I played soccer for a while, and uh, ultimately ended up going to a performing arts high school where I majored in acting. And my junior year, I started dabbling in dance with the idea that, uh, that the creative director of our school said, you know, if you, if you take dance, you'll be a better actor, you'll be more aware of your body. And so I thought, yeah, sure, let's, let's start doing that. So I started taking, taking class there. And the way that our high school worked was that if you were a minor, then you took the first half of class. And then you would go to another class for sixth period, and then you would come back for seventh period, which was the focused arts class, and then you would finish class. So I would basically take bar, and then that was it because I wasn't a major, so I would only mm. take bar. So for the first year, mm. I just took bar, and I or I took the warm up in jazz, and so I did that for a while, and then ultimately my senior year, uh, it came time for college, and I decided to apply to schools in Chicago and in New York, and. Uh, I was uh, not planning on, on going for dance at all. I, I wanted to just do acting, and I actually auditioned for, for Juilliard in acting, and uh, I didn't get in. Uh, but during the audition process, all of my fellow classmates in the dance school in high school said, hey, Brock, you know, there's an, there's an Ailey audition downtown Atlanta, and uh, you're the only one with a car, so uh, <laughs> you know, it's a free class, so if you, you, know, if you take us, then well <laughs> you, can, you get a free class out of it. I was like, okay, oh. great. So of course, in order to take the free class, I actually had to audition. Uh, and it was a really great c- class. It was with uh, Anna Marie Forsythe uh, from the Ailey School, and mm. I ended up uh, getting a, a scholarship to go to the the first year, the inaugural year of the Bachelor of Fine Arts program at oh the Fordham at Fordham University at Lincoln Center, and uh, wow. and my other option was to go to DePaul for acting. And mm. um, I had a, my stepmother had an apartment in New York City, and I had always wanted to come to New York and. not go not go to chicago so i thought okay i don't i don't really want to be a dancer but i'll act like a dancer for a year and just sort of see so i I really just took it in took it on as this acting exercise i'm like i'll I'll just play this on and then and see and see what and see what happens and uh i did the first semester at ailey and i was doing a performance uh of earl mosley's choreography Uh, At the in a studio showing and I was sitting on stage, which is basically just studio floor and felt exactly the way I felt when I was acting Hmm. and Mm -hmm. thought, wait a minute, this is this is this is it. This is actually what I want to be doing. Yes. And so from that moment forth, I stopped creating these barriers between the mediums, right? So it mm. wasn't about mm. acting and having words in my mouth or dancing. And now ultimately as a filmmaker, I, sh- I still try to keep those barriers barriers down. So hmm. I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I, I really I, I feel like Juilliard is a better place for me because I had only danced, like I said, only done bar for a year two years. So I, I really yeah. didn't have any dance training other than that first year at Fordham. So I auditioned for – I went across because I was already at Lincoln Center. I went across the Lincoln Center and I applied an audition to Juilliard. And uh, I, I applied late, so uh, I was able to talk to admissions and they said it was okay, and so I was able to get on the audition list. And hmm. uh, next thing I know, I was going to Juilliard, so I ended up going to Juilliard for four years, which was unbelievable. Uh, I wow. feel like I had a particularly special experience because I, I didn't have 20 years of dance training or 18 years of dance training to break down I really had a couple years of training.
0: I mean, most people, this is what's so incredible about your story, well, among other things, but most people do train for at least 18 years of their life, 15 probably, very intensively in ballet uh, and other other types of dance. Is there a period when you think you just made leaps and bounds in your dancing abilities? Because we've seen videos online. You have a beautiful facility with movement, and it would be surprising, I think, to most people that you didn't train intensively
2: oh my god I was such a brick I I was so so stiff especially when I was at Fordham it was really bad uh Miss Marino one of the ballet teachers I I somehow auditioned and I got into level three when we started school at Fordham and after the first class she pulled me back and she said you don't know what jeté is, do you? <laughs> you don't know what jeté batu is, and I looked, I was like, I have no idea. And she said, "Okay, listen. Like, if you promise me to work really hard and figure it out, I'll let you stay in this class. But mm, you are the worst wow. one in the class. You don't know what you're doing, <laughs> and you have to, and you have to really work hard." And so I started buckling down, and basically from from that time on, I just I worked really, really hard to wow. try to figure it all out. And the the beauty. Both of the Fordham program and the Juilliard program is that they were teaching anatomy and kinesiology, Um, and so, and again, I think why I also gravitated towards Bill's work, Forsyth's work,
3: yep, Mm -hmm.
2: is there was a system, right? So I wasn't just learning how to do ballet; I was actually learning about the body and learning what the body did in that archetype. And so it wasn't that hard for me to unravel what was going on. I. I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, but I, I mm-hmm. understood this is what you're physically doing when you do a plié or a tendu versus mm. having to watch someone and try to deduce mm-hmm. the quality. I was actually just learning the, the, the gross mechanical motor movements of a lot of things. And so that, that helped me learn really, really fast. Huh. Um, and also, you know, when I went to Juilliard, I was with 17 other students who were incredible. And Mm -hmm. my peers were unbelievable. So, again, I was the absolute worst one in the class, no question. And, uh, yeah, I just tried to learn as much as I could. Yeah.
0: When they clearly saw something in you, (laughs) that you Uh, could learn that. Benjamin Harcarvey
2: was, he was the artistic director at the time, and... He definitely took a, a leap of faith on me, but mm-hmm. he puns intended. You know, he felt uh-huh. like <laughs> <I heard laughs> <on this> <laughs> he he really felt that I had the passion. that I had a passion. Mm-hmm. And I remember the second year I I went up to him and I, I scheduled a meeting with him and I asked him, you know, what can I do to get better? And I had just performed a solo where it was just all passion and no technique. And he's like, <laughs> you know, Brock with you. Clearly the passion isn't isn't the question, it's the technique. Like Just buckle down, like, focus on the mechanics, keep focusing on that, and then eventually you'll be able to actualize what's inside. (laughs) And so, you know, you'll be able to change it. And the way that the the Juilliard School is is structured is that they really want to break you down, and so I didn't Mm -hmm. have that process. So most dancers are really frustrated because Mm -hmm. they're brought to a level one from year one, and they've got all these bad habits. At that level, you're already a really good dancer. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, so I didn't have to, like, worry about all that stuff. So I was a clean slate. And then I, I, just, I feel like I was a, a perfect example of this is what the program is because honestly, I had no dance training. I had never been to a summer school. I had mm-hmm. never done anything. So right. my first summer school was after Fordham, going into Juilliard. I went to the San Francisco Ballet. Okay. Learned how to do a tour. Didn't know what those. <laughs> know any of those things? <laughs> no,
0: they didn't mm-hmm. teach you that at Juilliard.
2: No, no, no. This is before before, oh, before I actually even oh, went. Oh, before you went. To yeah, okay. yeah, before okay. I went after mm-hmm. Fordham. I mean, yeah. I had l- I had learned to do some stuff at, yeah. at Fordham, but
1: mm-hmm. oh. and I think that's so interesting that you mentioned that at Juilliard they have to break down dancers and kind of start them from scratch and then build them back up to their style of training
2: um I don't know if I I don't think I would call it a, a style of training training per se as mm-hmm. more as an anatomical approach mm-hmm. to oh. it right yeah. because if you're if you're I believe a good training allows you to go into any type of style definitely you 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 know your body and it's about longevity right so if you've been following a certain style of ballet you might have bad habits you might Mm -hmm. be forcing turnout you might be doing you know hyper extending certain things which actually don't prolong your career yeah and since it's already so short you really need to know which you know how to do that so that's what I would say it's 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 more about being very neutral and Definitely. being able to take on any stylistic requirements or mm-hmm. you know artistic embellishments that your choreographer might ask you to perform.
1: So would you say it's more or less dancing from more of an anatomically correct place, as opposed to something more stylized and possibly incorrect way of
2: absolutely aligning I, yourself. Absolutely. I mean, sure. I think if any if any one asks, any choreographer asks. For, for anything there you know there is the pragmatic anatomical deduction of this is actually this is the mechanics of what you're actually asking me to do mm-hmm. I can apply all the types of metaphors wonderful adjectives to what it is and hopefully that will you know be transferred to the audience but ultimately this is what I'm doing mm-hmm. and so again this way m- might or might not hurt my body mm-hmm. this I might be able to do this you know repetitively for the next six weeks for the show for the duration of the piece mm-hmm. and I might not. And if you know your body, you can say, actually, I can't do that over and over and over. I will hurt myself Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Yep. Um, And I feel like I know we're going to we'll get to the piece uh, (laughs) nowhere and everywhere at the same time. But, you know, that was ultimately a six hour solo when it was first performed on a concrete floor.
0: Oh, and I was
2: fine. (laughs) I did it for six weeks, three hours, you know, three, three.
0: Your shins were fine. Absolutely fine. Wow. I,
2: I did have tennis shoes on, but okay. Not like wearing point
0: yeah.
1: shoes, <laughs> but, yeah, I can definitely see how the training at Juilliard would prepare you to do more rigorous and more exploratory contemporary work in general., yeah. so good to have that window into the Juilliard training.
2: yeah, it was it was I really can't speak highly highly enough of it, and I feel like I, you know, I took six years six years, I took six years off from dancing and then started doing that piece again and I was, I was back up and running within six months.
1: That's great.
3: Um,
2: and I was, you know, I, I was also very fortunate while I was at the school, I performed a lot outside of the school, and the school enabled me to connect with choreo- you know, different choreographers in New York, and I was able to tour in Europe and in Africa while I was still at school on my spring breaks and on my winter mm. breaks and in my summer oh breaks. Oh my gosh. Um, but Fun. during that process, I met Ron Thornhill, who danced at the Stuttgart Ballet. With William Forsythe, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up. Uh, I performed with Ron Thornhill. He choreographed a piece at the Santa Fe Opera.
0: Okay. And
2: mm-hmm. uh, so that started our friendship, and that was my that was the summer of my freshman year. So we stayed connected, and he was he was working in Europe a lot. So I would fly to on my breaks. I would fly to Europe and see some of the work that he was choreographing. He worked with a, a director named Michael Simon. Uh, a couple times and initially that's how I first met William Forsyth was at a, one of my friend Ron's not one of Bill's shows but actually one of Ron's shows mm. uh, at the uh, Dusseldorf Schauspielhaus.
0: Oh that's great and what what do you think made you a good fit for Forsyth's company and how did that transition work out?
2: Well if I go back to what I was saying earlier about when I first started dancing and trying to break down these barriers between mediums. hmm mm-hmm i feel like when i when i met bill and ultimately ron said hey brock why don't you go when it came time to audition when i was in my fourth year at juilliard he said why don't you you know why don't you go see bill like is that something you want to do and i said yeah let's let's do that and i had uh, i had seen them perform at bam mm-hmm. and of course really really liked the work and thought it was really interesting and you know i'd heard a lot of stories through ron about bill's work and what he was about mm-hmm. so for me i feel like it was such a good fit because even when i met bill for the first time it was clear that my interests were not solely in dance and his interests are not solely in dance he's an right. artist and i had for many years considered myself an artist and a performer uh eventually i would want to be a director and but but it wasn't just about the thing it wasn't about me actualizing some archetype or pre-conceived physicality mm-hmm. on his part he was interested in my curiosity and i was very i still am a very curious curious person so that, that was really what I think made it a good like a, a good fit. Uh, for okay. instance, when I when I went into the got into the company, my audition was less about my dance. Of course, he was able to deduce one my training. I had a good recommendation from a good friend of his, and a, and, a, and a colleague. But ultimately, I took class. But then I was able to stay for three days and be a part of the creation process. So I was able to, at the time I was studying uh, uh, epistemology at Columbia, and so I was able to talk to the other dancers about what I was learning in that class. Hmm. And so that honestly was my ability to sort of bring that into the room and have conversations and have discussions and be, you know, be a part of that creative process. Again, mm-hmm. tangential curiosities on my part, I felt like that, that's probably what made it a good fit
1: that makes sense Mm -hmm. and the fact that you even brought epistemology into that process (laughs) i mean that's something i think i would never um confidently just say i'm gonna try this today
2: that was bill bringing that out in me he and i had had conversations about what i was doing and so rather than say hey brock will you do some changemas for the for all the fellow dancers and show them that you know how to dance yeah you know he's like bring you know try to bring that out like share that that's int- that's different that's interesting mm-hmm. clearly you have a physicality Clearly, you have a physical intelligence mm-hmm. and you know and um, i you know i, I know how i can move so you mm-hmm. know that's mm-hmm. there but that was the baseline right it was my other interests that he wanted to bring out and he wanted to see and see how mm-hmm. that fit in the room
0: fascinating how does the epistemology fit in just really quickly was that you were just studying that casually on the side of dance no no, no that was or? one of my
2: academic requirements Okay, so... At you, Juilliard.
0: Oh, okay. You had... Oh, okay, so there were academic requirements alongside the dancing program. Yes. Then. Oh, I, I mean, I, okay. I, I
2: was able to... I did uh, an exchange. I... Uh, Benjamin Harkavy. There was a long-standing exchange at Juilliard
3: mm. for
2: Barnard, Juilliard, and Columbia students oh, okay. to exchange credits, but ye- like, 10 years before me, if not more, that ability had been shut down for dancers because mm. it was deemed too rigorous. I petitioned Benjamin Harkarby to reopen that so that I could do my academics up at Columbia and he allowed that. So sort of like reopened that possibility for the dancers there. So I was able to pick what liberal arts classes I was interested in taking. So in answer to your question, Mm -hmm. how that fit in, It's well that's a huge field of philosophical study that has Mm -hmm. a lot of weight and a lot of interest. And how can it not fit in?
0: Well, for Forsyth, I mean that seems like that's part of what makes him unique. I don't think a lot of studios would have you talking about that in the process of creative well just the process of creation of a piece That's really. Yeah. Uh, maybe
2: not maybe not at that time, but I, feel, I, I, I don't know. You know I feel like some people talk about that now. I feel like people are realizing they can't just talk about the movement. It's not just mm-hmm. about. The movement anymore. So yeah. whether it's this YouTube clip that I saw last night that was really cool,
3: yeah,
2: you know, or whether it's something I saw on the street that day, that's actually pertinent information. That's that's outside. So this just happened. That just happened to be what I was, right? What I was bringing to the table. But I
0: guess when mm. did that conversation even happen? Does he initiate? group conversations in, in the studio? or Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You're, to, you're
2: in the studio, and there's huh. literally a, a wall of books and printouts and scans mm. uh, from different sources That's at that awesome. time. They were working <laughs> with, uh, it was it was during the creation of Decreation mm. was when I was there. So there was Anne Carson's <laughs> like material that they were looking at. There was uh, Simone de Beauvoir. I feel like yeah. that was some of the... Wow. Stuff. I mean all of all a lot of the dance pieces there are approached the same way uh, German Schauspiel is where you always have a dramaturg Mm. on as a part of the project, right? There's always these outside ideas that are being researched. You're always trying to figure out ways. And again, it's it's dance, so it might or might not come into the picture, but it is it's in the room, right? It is it's Mm. something that you're thinking about. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. And I would say just in terms of where bill forsyth fits in the line of ballet he definitely brings a major intellectual approach to his work just the fact that there are a bunch of books and whatnot on the side of the room i feel like that's not typical of a lot of contemporary ballet choreographers well so that's really special
0: certainly in america i mean do you think that's also part of the european tradition more with uh, i would, mixing I would dance say the influence listen? of the
2: drama dramaturgy yes mm-hmm.
0: um research aspect Does Forsyth also look for curiosity, and particularly academic or, I don't know, just curiosity in general? Is that kind of what he's looking for in dancers? Because you mentioned curiosity. It seems like that's a pretty key component. I mean, I think. I don't think that's
2: singular to Bill. I feel like most creatives are looking for other people that are are curious. Mm -hmm. Right? Because then. And that's you know that's the old that old school dance like we don't want a thinking dancer we just want a body to do what we tell it to do mm-hmm. and that just as we know like that's just so stale and that's that old that old school mentality of the court of ballet you don't want someone to step out of line you don't mm-hmm. want anyone to look any different we just we're we're only using your physicality to you know fulfill and actualize whatever is on the part of the the choreographer mm-hmm. right and so I feel like that's I would hope that that's kind of falling out of fashion.
1: Mm-hmm. We can only hope, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I
0: think it is. I feel like the replacement, though, or what most people are turning to, to break free of that, is usually uh, heavily improvised or involves a lot of improvisation on the dancers' part. Do you think that improv is a key component to breaking free of those um, kind of old ways of doing things, or not necessarily?
2: There's no, I think. I mean, I feel like it. that Maybe that I'm sort of correct. would start a whole conversation about. Improv as mm-hmm. a choreographic tool,
3: sure.
2: Um, which, of course, we can we can get into because that's a huge component in Bill's work. But no, I don't. I mean, whether you're even if you're improving the way someone someone wants you to, or you know, with the ideas that someone else is asking you to do, you're still you're still that body. You're still you're either with the archetype or you're against it, right? We all know right. what like that classical that classical body is, but like, mm-hmm. what about the other eighty nine percent of people that just don't have that? archetypal body, but they're still a body and they can still explore space and they still have a thousand other qualities that are just as interesting as whatever that seventeenth century, sixteenth century right, you know, right, right. old conception of the body.
0: I think the simpler question is how do you see us breaking free of that archetype? In what ways? What do we do to break free? What are people doing?
2: Well, I think you're I think you are right that having fifty people on stage trying to look the same, not asking bodies to do that then of course you're like, you like you don't make those choices then that's not a requirement
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know simple stuff I think when we stop putting value on that when we stop putting value on oh their foot looks like this when it's pointed oh they can get their leg up to this line because the only way I can express what I want to say as a choreographer <laughs> is if their leg is this high like yeah. I mean come on like right. really like it doesn't matter. I haven't jumped I don't know I like I love to jump pretty feel like I was Me a pretty too. good jumper. Mm-hmm. I haven't jumped in 10 years. I I mean literally since maybe the last semester of my Ed Juilliard like just huh. didn't jump. Like, well, I don't have to jump. <laughs> you know what I mean? you know what I mean? Like that that's okay. Like you don't I mean huh. if you look at if you go like old school and you look at Martha Graham, like what was her physical palette? Like her what was she what was she able to do when she was at her like really 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 old. She was still an incredibly captivating performer. Mm-hmm. Right? It's when you start asking for these, you know, these other vocabulary, physical vocabulary terms. We're like, oh, well, they can't do that anymore. Well, mm-hmm. then they're no longer expressive. Right. Well, she was the choreographer. She said, well, I'm going to make the work based on what I can do. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that it's it's important that the choreographer takes on that same understanding. Like this is the body. This is the person that I'm actually working with. Right. So
0: mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. So
2: I guess the answer from my perspective is that when the choreographer starts to look at the dancer in front of them as their whole person not just what their body can do but what their interests are what they're what they're curious about what what makes them move what what right what type of music what lack of music what other things you know use that person for everything that they are
0: and then have a dialogue
2: about it because there's you know like we see the person in front of us but I don't know what what that dancer actually is interested in what they're trying Mm -hmm. what are they working on what would they like to work on Mm -hmm. yeah you know like when you start when the choreographer is strong enough in their own perspective Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then I feel like then those sort of dialogues can start to happen
1: so for me that really feels like that brings up the term authenticity Ah. because you're really pulling that out of the performer you're pulling that out of what we're now calling a co-collaborator and I really love that and I think it works really well when a choreographer knows how to do that and it seems like that was what Will Forsyth was really trying to work on
2: Oh yeah, B- Bill. Yeah, a- absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's. I think you really answered the question well. I mean, it, it's about an individualism and seeing something in a dancer and a person that's not just defined by the technique. Um, and actually, growing up, I think the director, former director of my dance studio, Lois Holton, brilliant choreographer, um, always looked at each person when casting the nutcracker or casting in general and especially with the children I mean she would kind of pick out specific parts for specific people that made sense for them in a way that didn't feel like favoritism but felt like bringing each person's unique perspective and abilities mm-hmm. so that even like maybe some of the girls who weren't as strong technically they didn't have to feel bad about it they had a really cool part that spoke to what they could do and my mom and I always talk about this and we just think it's so brilliant and it's uh, kind of cool to hear that like yeah recognized on a wider scale or contextualized in mm-hmm. a way
2: Um, Right. I think it is important. And I think what you're saying also because you have dual casts, right? Like a lot of the Mm -hmm. times, like one of the logistical requirements of making work and touring work is that you have multiple casts. Well, how do you take that same role that was developed and co-created by one performer and then switch it over? Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. And Bill was incredibly adept at that of saying, Mm -hmm. okay, well, this is how that person. So then the dancer could look at that body and figure out what they were doing and then learn that but then Bill would find a way to integrate actually the way that that person moves, right? The dynamics of what that person excels at or is interested in or again working Mm -hmm. on and put that into the performance. So you have two works that are very malleable and always evolving whether it's one cast or another and that's something that Bill has always said which is, you know, it's never finished. The piece is Mm -hmm. never done. I'm always working on it and even Mm -hmm. when a piece is 10 years old and we're on tour and it's a new city, if it didn't work, we cut it out. The very first show that I did, we were learning a piece that I don't feel I don't I can't remember what the the name of it was. I feel like we called it mattress dance. That was just <laughs> internally, like just the way one oh. that one flat thing reproduced is table dance internally. Oh, so this yeah. was mattress dance and it was based off of part of Kammer Kammer, which is a piece and inside a, an interior room within Kammer Kammer, there was uh, some movement that was happening on mattresses and you couldn't see it from the from the house, but there were cameras and windows looking in. So you caught these little glimpses anyway. He had developed mm-hmm. a piece and they had already performed it based on these two the, these mattresses, and so I was one of the first pieces that I was supposed to learn. On top of one flat one flat thing reproduced was this mattress dance, and I learned a part of Talal that Talal, one of the dancers, Talal was doing uh, or had originated. And we were in Ferrara, Italy, and we were on stage either the day before or the day of the premiere in Ferrara, and it was not working.
3: Mm-hmm. It
2: just wasn't working. And it was crap. It was it was just hor- it was horrible. And Bill scrapped it. and was like we're not showing that piece. We're gonna show something else. Oh wow! Uh, and so they cool. went back in and like pulled a piece, <laughs> another piece that they were working on that still wasn't wasn't fin- you know, wasn't finished. And they just started working and they and they did it. And you know, and interesting I, that flexibility. Obviously, wow. he has a lot of clout with the presenter and the ability mm-hmm. to do that. But also just the ability to say, you know what, I was evolving this piece. I was evolving it. We thought it was working. You know what? It's not working, and it's not salvageable. So let me move mm-hmm. on to another idea that I'm interested in, ex- in exploring still. Wow. Interesting. All right.
1: Yeah, and that aligns with uh, a talk I once listened to. Crystal Pite said that William Forsyth edits himself a lot and oh. is constantly editing the pieces, so that
2: yeah, a- sounds Yeah, absolutely. Like...
0: It also sounds a little more humane than a lot of the dance world for the dancers. I mean, it sounds like rather than, I don't know, beating you up over you can't do this. There was the option to to change the program or the bill and if you're working very closely as an as a human being on a piece and you don't have 90 degree extension, you know, rather than beating yourself up about that, the piece is to some extent maybe designed around more what you can do.
2: Well, I think I think it's about asking what's what's in the room yeah. and having the confidence as a creator To say, what's actually happening on stage right now? What is, what's in the room? Not, what do I, what did I want to have happen? Am I literally just watching the choreography unfold before me and and ticking off little check marks of, oh, they did that, they did that, oh, they hit that count, they did this. Okay, great. Then that's, that was my creation. That's, that's done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, One of the performers, uh, excuse me, choreographers that I worked with while I was at Juilliard and, was it, and when I was at Ailey,
0: Mm. uh,
2: was Jonathan Appel, and something that always stuck with me when he was making work was his ability to relish and enjoy each run of a piece. He never he never looked at a piece and said, "Oh, I I want it to be this. I needed it to be that." Or, "Oh, you didn't do X, you didn't do Y." It would always be framed more like a poet. I'm like, mm. "Ah, this time this happened." Oh, wow. And then this happened and that aligned with this moment, and then this happened. Mm. You know, you did it two times ago, it had this feeling. And then so you're actually starting to deal with the feeling that's being transmitted to the audience versus right. some conception and, you know, again, archetype, right. physical archetype. Huh. And so that, I, you know, I learned that from him. Bill has that very similar quality of knowing, you know, what, what's in the room, what, what's mm-hmm. actually happening.
1: It's kind huh. of like life. We should just be happy with what happens and get rid of our preconceived notions.
2: Right, and those preconceptions, I think, one thing I will say about, you know, the New York or the American dancing is because we have such a lack of funding, it becomes Mm -hmm. very precious right it's the only show that we have Mm. i only have six rehearsals and Mm -hmm. then i have to make my work and then i have to show it like it's so there's it is all preconception because you you've got eight months of grant writing and fundraising in order to try to get this thing out there
1: that's such a great point how the environment really changes the work
2: absolutely and affects the work i think that's for me that's the biggest difference between dance in europe and dance in america is the development time that the artists are given How could you, you know, if you have three months to develop a work for a showing and you have a full staff of dancers working, you know, 40 hour weeks for three months, how can the work not be different than someone who is presenting at the Joyce, Mm -hmm. who has to like still make a living, all of their dancers are still working full time jobs, they're trying to sneak in class, they can't afford to give their dancers class, so they Mm. can't even like get their... All of their dancers on the same page physically, and then they have to cram all this stuff in. And so what 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 happens is they have preconceptions. They have a you know maybe they can afford to have one dancer that they, a collaborator that they work with to mm-hmm. set the piece on, yeah. and then you get that information and they spit it out and the dancers learn it and then da da da, and then that's the piece. And that to me that's the big shift. Right. So you know you look at mm-hmm. Bill for thirty plus years he's been working and developing these mm-hmm. ideas.
1: Definitely. Whereas like wow. we can
2: barely have a season, you know, that after 15 years the company has to shut down. Or
0: That's so true. That is such a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> there's a lot in that um, to take us forward. <laughs> I don't know where to go next. I've been really interested, we should talk a little bit about Nowhere and Everywhere at the same time, um, process of presenting that work, and maybe anything about the process of creating it that you think would be of interest to our listeners. Um, one thing I'm particularly interested in with Forsyth's work in particular, and especially this piece, is how you locate what I would call the purpose, and you might disagree with that, but you're talking about a feeling transmitted to the audience, and I usually think of dance works in terms of sort of a feeling or an impression that you would create on the audience, and I know a lot of people say you don't have to create a specific impression. In that case, what is sort of the purpose, or how are you approaching um what the end goal is of the piece
2: we could change the terminology a little bit so it's not just feeling or impression but rather the experience the audience experience I'll right so if that's so if that's an intellectual experience if that's a visual Hmm. experience an audio experience that they can have you know whatever their arc of experience of how they perceive the work what you know where what are they thinking what are their preconceptions how are their preconceptions being broken down as they're watching or experiencing the thing that you've created Mm -hmm. what is that dialogue like how can you how can you preempt what it is that you think they'll do and then create shifts and changes in the in the work to you know snap them out of their snap them out of their seats and get them thinking a different way or approaching something a different way.
0: Is that necessary to make an audience for a speech, piece to be successful or relevant to make them change their thinking? Or can you just evoke something that's powerful that's not necessarily different?
2: It depends on what you're interested in artistically. For me, I'm not particularly interested in like just presenting something for an audience to be complacent with. That's okay. not really interesting to me. But that's fair. There's, you know, that's what you're into. That's great, too. If you're just trying to create some space and just like, Massage yeah. someone with something then that's <laughs> fine too
0: what were you what was the aim in nowhere and everywhere and um, I guess how was it received do you think the
2: aim if you want to use that word for for the audience uh, whenever I would engage with nowhere and everywhere at the same time mm-hmm. is for them to have an opportunity uh, obviously there, there are a lot of different things but to have an opportunity to watch a process of exp- exploration and immersion mm-hmm. into a choreographic object hmm. right so the audience would was invited in to watch me work ah. right to watch the questions that i was asking physically of the object and they were they were invited into that so right so i'm cataloging this, like i'm cataloging movement i'm cataloging the potentialities of what the system can do and they're invited into that Uh, originally when conceiving the piece there was a because we had a six-hour window that the piece was going to be open to Mm -hmm. the public this is when it was presented by creative time back in 2005
3: Mm
2: -hmm. right traditionally at that time traditionally you would maybe have something that ran in a 15-minute cycle or a 20-minute cycle or a 30-minute cycle Mm To me, that p- would put me in a place as a performer to just repeat something. And then how would that be any different than a proscenium-based exchange with an audience? Mm-hmm. So then they are gonna have expectations. They're gonna want to get it and then be done with it and then be able mm-hmm. to judge it. Where I knew that, no, I didn't, that's not what I was interested in. I, You know, I wanted to show the the work, right? To let the work speak for itself. And so by making it six hours long and making the whole piece, looking at the piece, from my perspective as a performer, 108 hours. It, it freed me of that relationship with an audience of expectation. So ultimately mm-hmm. I could say no one perfor- no one audience member is going to experience the piece in its totality. So therefore I'm never, ever having to give them anything or show them anything or do my trick or do my whatever to entertain them, mm-hmm. right? So I was trying to like remove entertaining from it. And so, again, uh. so I could just keep working. And then part of it, you know, I would I would reinvestigate things I had already learned. Sometimes I would catalog things that I would learn, but much more like a researcher in, inside of a space.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I feel like that that's the aim, actually, is to just share the process huh. and and let them in. And then, of course, yeah. the piece in itself like sucks you in. It's so meditative. It's hypnotic. It's a, it's a really fantastic piece. But. Again, asking the audience to trust me as a performer that I am the master of this domain because I'm the one who's activating it, right? I don't know how many times I've done it (laughs) now, but I've really been in this space a lot. Mm -hmm. So rather than with a lot of choreographic objects coming in and having this cursory experience with it, throwing a pendulum here and swinging it there and then blah, 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 you know, there's an there's a there's a request on the audience parts to say okay no mm-hmm. stop look see what see where the, the research is at.
0: Maybe we should take a quick step back. Can you describe the piece? I think it had pendulums. Sure, sure. There
2: were, I guess, over a hundred pendulums, uh, which are oh. the little plumb bobs that you use in carpentry to mm-hmm. find a vertical axis. Okay. And so those were mounted to the ceiling, and they were all maybe twelve inches off the floor and there was a complex field of these throughout a large, large space. Mm -hmm. The largest space, 40 meters?
0: Meters. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, 40 meters. What's that? Huge, huge space. For European listeners.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And then some of them have been more intimate spaces. Uh, And then you come into the the piece, and the moment the piece opens, I'm already at work Mm -hmm. inside of the space, and then the piece is closed down, and usually the lights are cut off and the impression is that I'm going to keep working until oh. the next session.
0: Great. Was it completely improvised then? Or was it guided improvisation? Or guided investigation. There you go. <laughs> it's probably
2: yeah, a better I, word. There's no set movement, if that's what you mean. There's no okay. set movement. But absolutely, I had a, a litany of ways of exploring the space physically, yeah. and so if there was any repetition, it would be in a revisiting of that way of cataloging the space physically.
0: Cataloging the space, that's interesting.
1: So just as a visual for our listeners, and me too, (laughs)
0: um,
1: can you give an example of maybe one of the investigations that you completed either with the pendulum or maybe against the pendulums? Um, Any example?
2: Sure, so if, if we just took very, 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 very simple... You just have a pendulum in front of you, and if it moves, if I move it 18 inches to the right, how far it goes back to the left, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the triangle that that creates in the space. Mm -hmm. And again, that triangle is in relationship to the, say there's 108 pendulums, 107 other static pendulums, so straight lines, Mm -hmm. right? So there's that, so just creating that dynamic in the space, and then if I set that pendulum on a circular axis, then all of a sudden I have a cone in the space with Mm -hmm. all of these. Mm -hmm. So that's just activating the system. Then Mm -hmm. say I do that. So I make that cone and then say I make eight other cones that in succession will all be getting smaller while some and they'll all be going the same direction. At a certain point, they'll stop and they'll start swinging the other way. So all of that movement, right? So even if I'm using my hands right now, but (laughs) there's all this. So even if I just traced with my my hand the bottom of that cone that's creating a choreography right so that's that and so if I'm just doing this one there's that one and then if I'm looking at that one over there that's six feet in front of me off to the left and that's mm. I'm using that with my elbow so I'm just simply and again, simplest version just tracing mm. that movement right and mm-hmm. so then as I'm doing that maybe I'm also tracing the edge the the top part of the pendulum right mm-hmm. as it moves through the space so you see like I'm moving like, it's creating like a choreography right, in my body.
1: your body as well. Very cool. Right, so
2: very, 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 very simple. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And then we introduce ideas of, you know, these, like, temporal markers. So maybe that stopped moving over there, but I'm going to show you what it was doing six hours ago before you got here. Uh-huh. So I'm going to do that. And then at the same time, the sun is coming through this window and it's creating a shadow of that pendulum mm-hmm. that's crossing, you know, that's bisecting that line over there. So then I'm going to show that physically that that's happening mm-hmm. at the same time while I'm also dodging this pendulum that I've <laughs> thrown up to the ceiling and is going to hit my head if I don't keep moving out my of God. it, right? So I've got this impediment <laughs> that I've got to keep doing and I'm doing all these things at the same time. And so I'm wow. creating all of that stuff. So. Cool. Choreographically, maybe I might revisit the pendulum that's going to hit me and evading that, mm-hmm. that evasive maneuver. I might revisit that, but it'll be in a different recipe from what I did two hours ago or an hour ago mm. or before or exploring what it would be like to, to have this part of the, the string on my face.
3: Mm.
2: And then how does that affect the rest of my movement? How do I transplant some other physical catalog you know, part of the room into my body? And, and see what that is how do I use how do I tangle up three pendulums and figure out how to unravel that with my body so that cool. a, as I take it I'm, I'm you know figure out what what how I can unwind that 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 tangle and rather than just using my hands very simply going like this right see all this movement that's happening in my hand I'm demonstrating unraveling. (laughs) There
0: is movement. Some strings, some strings, right?
2: (laughs) So I can do that. That's a tiny little choreography, right? But what if I do that and transplant like this string over here, this string to knee to to shoulder, to shoulder, and then this one actually using the back of my head to move the string, and so I'm physically untangling the knot using (laughs) my body. Wow, all all of of your body. All that's happening, you know, I'm moving and following something around getting it out and using it and again all I'm doing is just unraveling the knot that yeah. that choreographic object evoked in in what I was doing right mm-hmm. so that's creating all this movement without me choreographing or without Bill saying oh you're do this with your yeah. body right how mm-hmm. long does it take to learn every, i have no idea right, what right. i just did but yeah. i bet you if i went back through and thought exactly what i was doing before it would look pretty darn similar do so, wow. you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah.
0: What is the choreographic object? Is that the pendulum or the movement you created The whole system. The, the, whole, whole system. the whole piece, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. The mise-en-scene. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Um, so you perform this in a number of countries, and you've been all over the world in other capacities as well. Can you talk a little bit about different reception to that piece and other pieces around the world? This is one of our frequent questions. We're always curious about, especially, I mean, we know Europe is really different from the U.S. in general, but you've been to uh, Asia with these pieces. Um, I don't know as much about reception there. It's all just curious.
2: Curious. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really shocked and excited by different audiences. For instance, in Taiwan, this piece, the way people put the onus of interpretation on themselves... Mm. rather than I feel like in the West we're a little more used to being told exactly how to think and what to feel. And if that isn't transmitted to the audience, then the person says, oh, the audience says, oh, that didn't work. I didn't like it. It wasn't interesting. Hmm. Whereas in Asia, I feel like you come to the piece and you look at the piece until you find it interesting. I had a number of performers. Uh, By the time I did it in Taipei, uh, the piece was shortened to four hours. Mm. That seemed a little more manageable in my elder years (laughs) Um, they would come and there would be these construction workers that would come after clearly a full day's work and they would sit and they would watch the piece for two and a half three hours Wow and clearly it wasn't about me it wasn't it wasn't an ego driven oh watch him perform they started to create some sort of meaning they took they created narratives for themselves they remained abstract for themselves um, and this happened. This happened a lot. I received a lot of footage after those shows. I received a lot of emails mm. and letters of people telling me these like, profound and explicit narratives of what I was going through during the show. Wow. And, I, and who am I to say that that isn't completely valid from that audience perspective? Huh. Um, so that that was sort of what was going on in, in Asia. Um, wow. I did the show also in Cornell. And that was one of my favorite performances because the audience engagement before and after the piece and the conversations that I had—it was a much more intimate space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but what again? I feel like that particular audience was a very curious, curious. The audience. university crowd, yeah, exactly. Okay. Like mm-hmm. a lot of graduate students, right? Um, and it was installed at the architecture uh, as part of an architectural mm-hmm. exhibit. Mm-hmm. So, the the questions that they were asking. Just re- they, they were just, there. Was just very sensitive. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't about a performance, it was a, it was right. a, a conversation piece. Um, and seeing the space, right? So you have a lot of audience members who are architects or architectural students. Mm. And how I was defined, they could very clearly see how the space was changing based on how the system, very simple system of, mm-hmm. you know, pendulums and basically straight lines. Mm-hmm. But when it became active, re-seeing you know seeing the space and as the sun, you know, sets, on the mm. piece how that changes the room and for them to be right. able to to see that change in space again not based on oh you did this really cool move that was great you're a good dancer like that was right. not right. that was not it and again to harken back to why I think I was a good fit for bill is that that's actually what I'm interested in I, oh these are the questions that I'm provoking isn't that interesting because who who cares if I can do a parawet like I, I don't care if I can do a pirouette. Well, but they're right? so fun. They are so fun. <laughs> who does it mean, who doesn't like to turn in a grocery store? I mean let's be honest. All, all of us. Fun. Jazz runs in a grocery store. store. But but when you get down like to the art of it, it mm. isn't a... Like, we're not circus freaks. Right? Mm. Like that's Yes. And that's yeah. that's not it's not interesting. It doesn't have any life and I, I feel right. like you have to look for the long line. Like what is what is the ninety year old performer and what is the six year old kid? Like, what are they doing and how how do we all fit on that that line?
1: Yeah. Mm. Absolutely.
2: The people in, you know, in Europe again very different audiences, but just how people approach it what what their dance education is, what their art education is, right. what their expectations are, how the it's amazing how different we you know throughout all the pieces we changed the program notes. In other words, how the piece, right? So on accident it when we did it in Venice, they Build it as a performance that started mm. at six and went to 10.
0: Mm.
2: Killed the piece, just killed it because you yeah. have several hundred people showing up expecting a performance.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, my God, like, no, this time. is not a performance. This is mm-hmm. not how that, you know, mm. but little things like that. So as the piece evolved and, you know, as the years go by, you learn how to describe, mm-hmm.
3: describe it better.
2: And what are you expecting them? What is my role? Am I a dancer? Am I a performer?
3: Mm-hmm, I know, right. Am
2: I just a steward of the space? What am I? How do we? I know. How do we wow. define that? So I think that has a lot to do with it. And again, our audience expectation is, is a yeah. huge part.
1: Yeah, expectation is everything. I found recently I've really been enjoying taking non-dancers to dance shows. For that reason, they actually have no expectations, and they have so much more insight than I actually can bring to the piece because mm. I do have all of these hidden expectations that I'm not even aware of. And
0: it's always refreshing to. And they usually enjoy it, right? Oh, yeah. Which is awesome. I feel like a lot of people who don't have that dance background have trouble sometimes mm-hmm. feeling like it's not accessible. But a lot of people really love it. Mm-hmm. At the same
2: time. I think they do. But I would say, with the caveat, that often one of their first responses is, I mean, I don't really get dance, get it. but I felt dot, dot, dot. Right. Mm-hmm. And my response is always like, it doesn't matter if you get it. Yeah. Like, whatever you felt is a valid, is a valid experience.
0: Absolutely. So how does dance become more accessible or just become accessible in general? I mean I think we've talked about allowing the audience to create their own meaning but at times I think that that can stand in the way especially when people are coming in with this idea that meaning will be conveyed. Do we think it's best to guide? Do you have to be careful about how you guide people with the right program notes? Is it better not to give them any information? What's your opinion?
1: You know. or how does one set the appropriate expectation yeah without setting too many expectations right
2: well i think there there should be a dramatic reforming of the value system within whatever you're creating i feel like okay that's, for me that i feel like that's at least that's what i'm also working on trying to figure out how we change the audience value systems how do we change what they perceive as exciting or interesting or engaging hmm. right So you think you can dance? It's very clear what's exciting. Yes, we know what. Oh, they're really good, right? It's a very, very tiny, tiny, tiny vocabulary of what is exciting and what's good. So, like, we have to we have to change that. And so, within the piece, I I mean, I'm a big believer in like stealing like Aristotelian arcs within a work and like giving some exposition right up front, whether that's in the program notes, whether that's in how the piece is built, or literally in the first five minutes of the work, you show the audience. This is the value system that is going to operate in the next hour. This is mm-hmm. how I want you to look at work. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to capitulate to whatever you think is necessary in the trope. I'm going This is what it's gonna be. So find value in it because you know what? There is beauty in it. There is something mm. interesting in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Come to it. You know, if you come to it, there's gonna be something for you. I'm not gonna abandon you. I'm not gonna like. Well, you know,
0: I really like that approach. I expected to disagree somehow, but. I'm all for telling people more. I feel like what I don't like these days is when artists decide that they're such an artiste, they're going to present a performance and not tell you anything about it, or present a work even just like a painting or a work of any art, and it's up to you to find the meaning, and it does leave you feeling like you have to get it, or you have to create a meaning of your own without any context, and sometimes it's such a new presentation to you that finding that context I feel like there is always a context there is always to me I would say the word purpose but again I like I think the word values phrase value system is probably better there's something driving that piece that makes it interesting to the creator at least and if I'm given a little bit of guidance on what that is I can't remember the example when I know there was a time when in the program notes they described kind of how a piece came to be and what the process of making it was and I found that so interesting I was like oh I'm not going to see this as like a straightforward, it's not going to be a story, it's not going to have necessarily an emotional value, but the fact that they followed this process makes the piece fascinating. So I think Mm -hmm. that really is, it's probably a fine line to walk, but I think you do need to give people some context, some information, and it's a way to guide them forward so that they can kind of find more and more meaning on their own the more they watch dance.
2: I think that that should be up to each creative on how that you know what that is, whether that's sure. language or whether that's va- when I you know when I say values within the piece itself, I think it's about being clear as the creator what it is you're interested in or what it is that mm. you're doing, knowing what you're doing or asking or what you don't know, mm-hmm. and not being afraid to put that out there, even within the work. You know, I think I think that's really important.
0: Well, do you think it has? Do you think it kind of has to be done um, extraneous to the piece? I, I think it kind of does. I think either a program note or, like you said, a, a verbal introduction or something. But are you thinking that that kind of explanation co- could come across in the piece itself? No, I think it – yeah,
2: I think if it's yeah. good, it should come across in the piece itself. I think it should come across in your supporting materials. I think if yeah. someone's going to talk about it, I think it should come across. Yeah. You know, unless you're trying to hide behind the work or in, or unless you don't want to engage in that. Maybe, maybe okay. what you're asking – isn't about that maybe you're not interested in an audience maybe you're just making stuff for yourself well in that and case, then if that's the <laughs> case then, like, <laughs> that's you know that's fair game too like but then yeah. they should know
0: that and then wouldn't i as an audience member find it interesting to know that they didn't even care about me and no. if, it, if it was presented <laughs> in a public place or somewhere where i could become an audience i'd be like okay well i know what this is about and oh, well geez, i know
1: what my nice. program notes are going to be this is all about me
2: <laughs> <laughs> i'm working through a lot of things right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, interesting like
1: that. yeah fascinating
0: yeah and I think um, I mean I watched uh, forgetting the name the Forsyth piece with the uh, tabletops uh, One Flat Thing Reproduced One Flat yes. Thing Reproduced I watched that online with no context really and found it fascinating it's very abstract but just the movement is so specific and geometric and well, I don't know if I'm describing it the way he would want to describe it, but it and so bold it it made some kind of impression on me. I haven't exactly sorted out what it is, but um, it was. I didn't need the explanation, but I do think that oftentimes I think artists, I guess, should be a little bit more careful about what whether an explanation would help their piece or not. Because I think sometimes mm-hmm. people just throw it out the window to be different and creative hmm. when it could be helpful.
2: I'm and I think if, if to go back in our conversation, what you know what needs to change in dance because. Ultimately, when I took six years off from dancing, I when, didn't see a lot of work.
0: When was that? Like what From
2: 2005 to 2011, I didn't okay. dance at all. Wow. I just focused on filmmaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, when I did that, I came back and, well, that's not true. I guess 2009, I co- co-choreographed a piece and created a dance film. But I came back into the room <laughs> and, oh my God, like it was so foreign to me. Dance. It just. I had forgotten how important it was to point your foot. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten to like. Very how important. You know, we get so mm-hmm. myopic about like what it is that we think is important and has such such value, mm-hmm. when it actually really doesn't have any value. Nobody outside cares. Those lines, like we can't even see those lines. I can't even. You're getting off that you hit that line and hit that mark and did this on the music. I don't even see it. I mean, it's just a wash. It's totally mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. You know, I got reacclimated to it. But I think it would serve us well to understand that outsiders don't see those things all the time. Like we don't see that minutiae, right? Sure, maybe like it's there and it like it hits us and it sparks some subliminal thing that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. But I think this the obsessing over it. Mm -hmm. We just have to understand that that is a very very heightened vocabulary that Mm -hmm. not everyone speaks. Right. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. And if you do want to work with an audience, right? If you're going to work with an audience, that's a connection and that's a dialogue. So you've got to. I feel like you have to have some, there has to be some effort to communicate.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely. Right? Hmm. And like you
2: said, like if you just want to throw it out the window, that's that's communication. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going like this. That's what <laughs> yeah. I'm doing. It's that's, a conscious
0: choice. That's a conscious yeah. choice.
2: But it is a dialogue, right? For most people, I would say, like, especially yeah. a performative art, it is about a dialogue with an audience.
1: Hmm. So you did start to mention your filmmaking. And how and when did you become interested in film?
2: Uh, I've always been interested in, film, you know, having growing up acting, and we see so many films, it was always in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. as something that I want to pursue. My father is a photographer, mm. so I was always always taking photographs, and, th- you know, visuals were always a part of what I was doing. And when I was dancing, we were always doing dance photos and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, my, but the actual piece was Bill Forsyth, William Forsyth produced my first film, which was called Mm -hmm. Fulkel Bergman, which was a collaborative piece with Richard Siegel and Douglas Ferguson back Mm -hmm. at Ballet Frankfurt in the winter of 2000, I guess it was the winter of January 2004, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and during the creation of that piece, we were in the room, we were working on post, and I thought this is it. I I was just had one of those Mm -hmm. moments of like, this is what I want to be doing. This is what I want to do. Like the way we shot it, you know, the entire process of filmmaking. Like this is what I want to be be focused on. So I want to start transitioning to figure out how to do this full time. This it just felt like this is actually my medium. This is actually what I'm more. Um, Mm. This is what I want to use. And so again, that's like the acting, the dance. Like it's, it all is the exact same thing to me. So it's really hard for me to break up all the things that I've done and my experiences Mm -hmm. in my world and the things that I'd make. But I do know that the medium of here's my show, here's my piece, that Mm -hmm. I want to be through, to be through film.
0: You directed that? You're a director? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, I guess how has your work in general with Forsyth or the explorations that you've done with Forsyth really informed your filmmaking?
0: And all dance, like all the dance you've done.
2: I think, I mean, it, for me, at least what I'm interested in now, uh, especially in filmmaking, is is the process and is the experience.
3: Mm.
2: Whether that that's everyone that's involved in the making of the film or what's going on on screen with okay. a performer or a character is trying to find that authenticity mm. of what's happening, even if it's narrative, even if it's fictional, if it's mm-hmm. documentary trying to create film objects that are as close mm-hmm. to the experience and the process of making and then transmitting that to an audience. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that I feel like that comes from dance. I feel like how many hours we spend in the studio focusing on that line mm-hmm. and imbuing so much value into that Arabesque line mm-hmm. or that Tondu line and believing so wholeheartedly that there is value in this. Mm-hmm.
3: Hmm. Some of and, us
2: and some of us but bon but, but no but if, if that's what we you know if that's what you're going it doesn't matter if it's that or if it's a tandu. Yeah. That right. that's the value that I have. Mm-hmm. Right? So trying to to get that to the audience member so that they they can experience that too. They it's as rich, it's as you know and so as far as improvisation goes, mm. it's understanding that there are other ways to create something and that was the key for me with Foresight. I felt like it honestly I felt like it unlocked my creativity it was it wasn't me Mm. trying to come up with shapes in the space and Mm -hmm. choreograph and say here you do this I was much more interested in asking questions in a room trying to figure out how that question could be posed physically Mm -hmm. and then what that would generate and so that the pursuit of the question, the pursuit of the inquiry, the experience, is what generates the art, is what mm-hmm. generates the thing that we, that we see and okay. that we predict. And so I try to do that same thing in filmmaking. I try to set up boundaries, set up, you know, whether it's a game or whether it's just some modal structure that mm-hmm. the crew or the cast can respond to and be be limited by and push up against uh, right and so like using those those confines to create something to, to make a generative experience so that we're not okay. all just in these like frilly adjectives land like it's not it's not just all that it's, i'm mm-hmm. actually letting people have an experience and so whatever that is to me that authenticity has value and so okay. for me the way that i state value in my work is that I try to create a structure and say okay this these people actually experiencing these things is what has value not any other formulation of to come back to Aristotle like oh you have to <laughs> have this or you have to have this goal or you have to do this yeah. you know and this is the structure and you have to fit it within that structure like I'm not interested in all of that stuff I understand that those arcs work and give give the audience a good ride yeah. but mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in sharing what that person is actually going through and mm. then having that end up in the in the final product.
1: Can you mm. give an example?
2: Absolutely. So uh, I just finished a film that's still in post-production uh, called Any Other Normal and there's a scene where a woman is taking a pregnancy test. Mm.
3: Mm.
2: And so the scene is her staring at the medicine cabinet. She takes the pregnancy test out of the EPT box unwraps it, sits on the toilet, takes the cap off, urinates on the test, ah. waits for two minutes. <laughs> the result comes. She throws <laughs> the pregnancy test down on the floor and leaves the room. Oh. Right? That whole scene is four minutes long. I would say, in traditional filmmaking, all you really glean from that scene is she takes a pregnancy test, it's positive, or it's negative, over. All right. right. I actually so in this film (laughs) you watch the whole thing happen you hear her urinate you see her horrified to turn over or whatever I don't even want to play (laughs) like whatever her reaction you watch her turn it over you see what it's you have that experience of her in the room of it and it's not about and you don't even from the scene you can't tell if it's positive or negative Mm -hmm. you can't Mm. tell if her getting up and throwing it on the ground is her upset because she is pregnant or upset because she's not pregnant
1: mm-hmm.
2: but creating that space for us to sit with her and have that experience
1: wow and that's powerful even as you were telling the story i found myself experiencing it <laughs> thank you so
0: you wait you you wait the whole two minutes
2: oh yeah you don't get into yeah, that? yeah there's no there's no it's all it's all, all real right. time it's you really you're really oh. sitting in it
0: and is part of the idea to inspire the actors to feel more, to, to make their performances more naturalistic, or is that not even part of it? It's really just to give the audience more of the sense of. I think unfolding.
2: I, I mean, chicken and egg kind of right. Yeah, yeah, like, fair. They, okay. They, they have yeah. that like real process, yeah. and then they. Yeah. They move. You know. Put
0: themselves in the. Hands-up.
2: Then it's there. Then it exists, and then we can give that to the. Yeah. To the audience.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say that you use a lot of uh, improv and? Do unscripted works in your film or yeah you absolutely say?
2: I try to look I try to figure out okay what is the what's the arc of the scene mm-hmm. and then just um, figure out ways to like hit you know hit, hit those points but like see what's actually happening in the room see what's mm-hmm. what the performers are doing what their characters are into what are they feeling and then how again how the crew responds to that what they're seeing what the light is in the room what are we changing what's real what's not hmm um, yeah to tr- 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 try to have that that freshness
0: Interesting. So we understand you definitely do some dance film as well. Uh, how do some of those principles translate to making a dance film?
2: I collaborated with Stuart Langeway on a piece called Vesper and I came into the project late and he had already choreographed amazing duets, amazing solos, amazing group work and he said, well, hey, do you want to get in on this and like end up, you know, co-choreograph what we're doing so What I did in that process was basically strip down the choreography and figure out some improvisations that could happen around the structure of the existing choreography, uh, whether that's like textural or little things that the dancers could explore around. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of starts to change physically what's happening in the room. And then there was a dance film that we made from that. Mm -hmm. And so. For me, the way it translates is that that experience, right? So, like, that art object, which is the choreography, exists. And then there's the camera's perspective, i.e., like, my perspective of what I'm, how I'm experiencing that work. Mm-hmm. And that gets filmed in certain ways. And how that experience is then put onto film and then edited into a new experience, That that's something that I've done a lot with the dance films. It's it's a, mm-hmm. it's like a reimagining, but it's a whole new like a whole new film work artwork using that choreography as like source material Mm. right so that's whether i'm focusing on that straight pointed leg how that bisects Mm. the frame
3: yep how like
2: what am i you know it's a solo but all you're seeing is their shadow how does that how does that play Mm. into it what are the things that i'm seeing and experiencing it experiencing in the piece what do i find value in and then how do i frame that cut that Show, you know, bring that in to get that closer for the audience so that I can say, like, this is my experience of it and I'm gonna use all these cinematic elements to then give that to you. So that ultimately I feel like the dance films that I make are a lot closer to what it is I wanna say choreographically or express mm-hmm. as an artist mm. than just what's up there on stage, right? Because you have just the proscenium, you the audience looks at whatever they want to look at. There's no mm-hmm. editing, there's no cutting, there's they mm. it's all wide shot. Yeah. Right? right? Yeah. So in dance film, I really, really like that ability to get in there with the body, and it somehow, for me, becomes more physical. It's more visceral. You're you're on a ride. Oh, yeah. you're, you're, like, dancing with them, right. and then you're not, and then you're dancing with them, and then you're back outside, and then,
0: yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. Huh. That's really cool. Do you want to focus on mostly on dance film, or do you evenly split pretty much between narrative and dance? And types?
2: Uh, right now I'm really focused on narrative work. Okay. But I don't, I f- again, I feel like...
0: It's whatever you're done, drawn to.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like the body is—it's—it's it's all like the body is always there, right? So if you're even yeah. if you're just filming some just architecture, right? Those choreographic rhythms are always in in your in filmmaking, mm-hmm. right? The editing process is so choreographic, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, totally. So again, yeah. like even if it's a commercial Everybody for Band-Aids, I feel like it's very choreographic, <laughs> and if it's done well, like you're oh. using all of those, you're using all of the best stuff that we learned from choreography and you know contemporary mm-hmm. dance, and like think it's all in there, band aids. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. I mean, seeing the world and through the lens of choreography is is an interesting way to look at things. Um, You definitely can find elements of choreography all over the place. It's cool.
2: I'm I'm surprised that well I mean there are a ton of dance films being made right now, Mm -hmm. and it feels like that's like the it's like I feel like it's a I feel like it's a no-brainer, especially in America where we don't have funding. But you know what? You can actually bring a camera in there and shoot what you're working on without having to, like, rent out a theater, without having to hire a union crew Mm -hmm. to, like, produce that, without having to get the butts in the seat and charge $75 to go see a show at the Joyce. Like, there's other ways to, like, get your ideas out there. And we have this medium, and we all have phones, and, like, shoot it and, like, get it out there.
0: Yeah, it's a huge emerging trend, which I love, and I'm definitely capitalizing on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had one specific question. And then I suppose we have to wrap up pretty soon. But um, I did want to ask, okay, based on something I saw on your website, you say, as a creator, I'm infinitely intrigued by the idea of fantasy life and how it affects our actions or accentuates our stasis. This is interesting to me because you are intrigued by fantasy life while at the same time taking a sort of realistic, naturalistic approach to your filming and what you're presenting. And I'm also curious how a fantasy life... Uh, would accentuate our stasis and what you mean by that?
2: I feel like if we if we personally, if you know if I look at what my fantasies are mm-hmm. or what what where my fantasies are drawn to, it's usually in contrast to what my reality is.
3: Mm-hmm. right So okay. if that
2: reality isn't moving,
3: mm-hmm.
2: isn't isn't doing what I want to do, yeah. right mm-hmm. to me it's an indication of what I should be doing, or I'm more interested, you know, what, what should be, you know. Okay. So for me, and I feel like that's a, a common thing for a, a lot of people, you know, they have dreams, mm-hmm. oh, if only I did this, or if I won the lottery, I would do this, or mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I wasn't with you, I'd be doing this, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, like, there's yep. all of that, and to me, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's what I mean by accentuates the stasis, and like, mm. get up and do something, move, and that's what's so awesome about dance, right? Mm. You, you sit back, you know, an audience just sits there, but like their synapses are going through everything that they're seeing on stage, and like it like right. shakes us and gets us out and mm-hmm. makes us move and like experience the world in a physical place. And again, like what's wow. so great about the the moda- you know modal based improv and like exploring stuff physically is like the whole point is like turn it upside down and look at the world in a different way, look at the body in a different way. You know what is it like when we all do a dance under the studio table? Right, like how, mm-hmm. what spa- What's that space like? How do we change what it's doing? It's not just about this old-school, like, proscenium-based, you know, on face. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's not just about that. And so how do we, you know, unwrap our body and, and explore things in a different way?
1: Yeah. Awesome. So are there any current projects or future projects that you would like to talk about or things that you're really excited about at the moment?
2: Uh, right now I'm in development on a feature film called Rachel that hopefully in the next six months we will start shooting
0: mm-hmm. exciting are you shooting in New York
2: we are shooting in New York we'll be shooting in Brooklyn
0: all right oh, good. okay great great well thank you so much for joining us this was incredibly yeah. interesting well, very interesting, interesting. absolutely <laughs> thank loved you for having yeah. me
2: and it's it's really wonderful to, to to meet two people that are asking these questions I think these are some really important questions for the dance dance community to to hear and be discussing and trying to figure out and yeah, you know, great. Be a little, you know, be introspective and self reflexive on what it is that we're doing and how we're going about doing it.
0: Yeah, okay. thanks again. Thanks, guys. You can find more of our ideas and uh, episodes on our Facebook page, Pottedo de on Facebook. Um, everyone listening, pr- please like it. You can also go to our website, Pottedo.com, de where we have all of our episodes, and they're on iTunes. I think if you find them on iTunes, it helps us on iTunes, so maybe use iTunes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.